Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger. This month, we have a great episode with Dr. Rujutsa Mehta. Dr. Mehta is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon from India whose passion for treating children is inspiring. She founded the Women of Orthopedics India Collective Empowerment in 2018 and is on the executive committee of the Women's Advocacy Section of the Asia Pacific Orthopedic Association. I learned a lot from my conversation with Dr. Mehta, not only regarding her love of pediatric orthopedics and the passion to increase diversity in orthopedics, but her love of the arts and hidden talent as a playwright. I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Rujuta Mehta. Dr. Rujuta Mehta, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix It podcast. Coming all the way from India, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much, Alana. I think uh, initiatives like this really make a huge difference to the orthopedic world. And um, especially, I think, for women in ortho, um, you know, it's, it's just fairly recent that now people are speaking up. So connecting better, reaching out and uh, really sharing the same sort of feelings and uh, experiences, I think really enriches the support much better throughout the world. So I, I, I do appreciate what you're doing as well. And I think the sustaining the activity also takes another sort of a grit. So congratulations to you as well. And thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much for your kind words. I really appreciate it. Um, I would love to hear kind of the story of your background, where you grew up, you did your schooling, your medical education, and your post-education years. Yeah, so um, I've basically been born and brought up in Mumbai. That's It was called Bombay sometime back. And uh, we, we still think about it as Bombay. But I think one of the most important things that we get here, because it's a multicultural city and very cosmopolitan atmosphere, is that you grow up with diversity. You grow up learning about acceptance. You l- grow up uh, appreciating that everybody is different, but everybody is uh, kind of, you know, uh, perfect or uh, as imperfect or as human as you in their own ways. So it's a very Mm. uh, uh, open atmosphere for opportunities. I did my schooling in one such great school called Jamnabai Nursi School, uh, which is in Villaparle and Juhu, that's the west of Mumbai again. Uh, Again, very, very cosmopolitan atmosphere. And one of the uh, biggest things I think I imbibed during my school years is that there is no dearth of what you can dream. There is absolutely no need to suppress yourself. That That's the kind of uh, childhood that I got. Um, family life has been very different. My mom was a single mother uh, and she really saw a lot of hardships uh, grow, and she brought me up. And what I learned maximum from her and I still uh, in the kind of get it a dose of it every day is that there's nothing like no so if there is a problem you cannot tell yourself that i don't have a way out 
if you in fact if you face problems you dive right deep into yourself and find a way of solving them so she's always lived with her head held up high and really faced everything and she's learned to take it and leave it uh life as it comes so probably i just intuitively imbibed all of that and uh, then i did my medical education because it was always her dream to be make me a doctor and i my dream was more uh, more or less to make something good of myself so i when i went into orthopedics i just found it so reconstructive nice and challenging that i began to enjoy the thrill even more so when it came to uh, deciding what to do about orthopedics or whether to do it or no i didn't didn't just didn't see no as an answer you know in in my uh, mind it was always i like it i want to do this for the rest of my life i'm able to get it and i'm enjoying it even when i'm you know either either training or uh, uh, even attending ors or emergencies with some seniors so since everything was a tick box i mean there was no question of a no despite what everyone said so again uh, jj hospital and grand medical college where i did my uh, mbbs very open atmosphere you're pretty much uh, uh, trained to do things by yourself rather than really uh, reading too much into books or being spoon fed or anything and uh, then um, it was bombay hospital again which was a new setup for orthopedics so people were very encouraging yes i mean there were a lot of uh, seniors who couldn't take the uh, fact that oh now we have a woman as a postgraduate oh gosh i hope she manages to cope with the rest of them but my pg teacher who was dr tarapurwala uh, one of the first things he said to me is ruchita now you're one of the boys so please don't think yourself as anything different and just do your best so i think all along all these uh, positive feedbacks and a bit of the negative feedbacks kind of even reinforced my decision even more that i'll just go ahead and do exactly as i please and as long as i'm liking it enjoying it and i'm doing a decent job there's no question of no wow that's absolutely incredible um and i love the story about your mother that's so special um and you you mentioned a little bit of you know why you wished to do orthopedic surgery and I was hoping you can delve deeper into why you wanted to subspecialize into pediatric orthopedic surgery. Yeah so I think this this stems right in second MBBS when you're we are introduced to the world of orthopedics. Um Adams was one of the loveliest books I've read and I still love it to date. and because that mentions that the whole the craft of orthopedics has really begun with children and deformity mm-hmm. correction um that fascinated me a lot and as i work in it i think uh, it it's genuinely very very satisfying so uh, right from second mbbs onwards i kind of not only knew that i wanted to do orthopedics i wanted to do pediatric orthopedics was like absolutely clear in my mind how it will happen how i'll go around achieving it i had no idea i mean i'm one of those who if i've set my eyes or set my heart to something then i'll just go all out and just do what it takes yeah <laughs> and then it just so happens that uh, uh, the unit that we attended uh, uh, orthopedics in where you're taken as uh, you know to see the actual working in second mbbs and you're just standing behind as a student 
we had one of the senior most and uh, the kind of the father of pediatric orthopedics in uh, india as one of the associate professors in the unit then and he would actually time take time out and show us and uh, otherwise i think in most other units if it was orthopedics because of uh, and india has large numbers and we were in a government setup so they don't want infection so if the students are not willing to come into or they most happily drop you out but uh, mm. because our professor was a pediatric orthopedic surgeon and he himself he's like he's one of the most biggest geniuses around dr ashok johari and since we also used to like it and i love and i wanted to do it he would take us into or he would show us everything i saw him do a ddh with such finesse that i think that inspired me even more and uh, it it was just uh, to to this date even when i do a ddh now i just feel it's just so remarkable in nature that um, you know i think the body is the biggest piece of uh, engineering which uh, god has made and everything is so well thought of every tissue has a function every uh, symmetry or asymmetry in the body has meaning it has some some purpose so i mean putting things right was uh, what fascinated me as a student and uh, i realize how difficult it is to execute that now as a professor myself but the fascination continues the love for the subject continues so that's when i knew i wanted to do pediatric orthopedics and then a big long journey began that you have to do ms ortho then um i actually that's why i did that in bombay hospital and again um my pg teacher was a uh, he was dr johari's teacher as well and he was also very keen on hand dr jc tarapurwala late dr tarapurwala so he always said that you should go to wadia hospital for doing some hands on and my thesis also was club foot that i used to go and do in children's orthopedic uh, haji ali and see some great results at the end of 15 years uh, child running jumping dancing and when you see those pictures of how they were born and how they are now that felt very meaningful to me that as a doctor you've really actually changed someone's life and changed it for the better so then i went to wadia hospital and i uh, would after my ms ortho i would just work there for some time and seriously the universe conspires if you're really headstrong about getting what you want so we had our head of department who was retiring then and i think just seeing my sheer uh, enthusiasm he said would you want to hang around so i said yes most certainly so they they kind of created a non stipendary position and that's when i met my other mentor in pediatric hand surgery dr mukund thatte who was a plastic surgeon and he opened up a whole world of obstetrical brachial plexus congenital hand and all that to me which i had never seen during my ms ortho training because ms ortho is largely trauma 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 little bit of uh, mm-hmm. arthroplasty little bit of scopy here and there but not as much as uh, pediatric reconstructive work so then i just i mean just stayed in wadia for as long as i could uh, as a middle level trainee then i uh, kind of tried and got my short term fellowships and then when i came back uh, lo and behold they said we would like you to continue as an honorary professor so it's it's been a long but very rewarding journey very rewarding journey <laughs> 
Yeah, no, that's incredible. I'm the uh, chief resident on the pediatric orthopedic surgery service here. And it's, it, I think what you say and how it's kind of, it's like the bread and butter of all of orthopedics and, you know, being able to fix these kids and get them back to what they were doing before and kids back bound, you know, um, they bounce back so incredibly. It's, it's truly remarkable to see. Yeah, and I think one of the other things which now touches me a lot is when you do something right for a child, you actually help the whole family. So Mm -hmm. uh, that's another very big fascination and uh, a sort of pleasant burden that you carry and which, of course, makes you feel the responsibility as well, especially when you're dealing with cerebral palsy, osteogenesis imperfecta and things like that. Right, that's so true. I know you touched a little bit on kind of the process of your training, and I was hoping you can kind of describe, you know, in general, what, how one becomes an orthopedic surgeon in India, you know, in the United States, it's for, you know, your college years, you do your medical school years, usually four to five years, your residency is five years, and then you do a one-year fellowship, and then you're off into the world. What's the process like in India? So we we do a schooling of 10 plus 2 here, which means you're pretty much like a higher secondary um, equivalent to in USA. And then you go to uh, junior college, which is two years of choosing the science stream. Of course, things are rapidly changing now. This was in my days what I'm talking about with the IB system and all things are changing. Uh, and then you go to a, uh, if you really score well, you can, there's a common entrance uh, which you appear for and you can get into one of the good colleges if you really rank well. Uh, if you rank really high, you can stay back in your own uh, town because I think most of the times when they give, not not really like a match, but when you give a preference of which college you want to enter, it will pretty much depend on if the higher the rank you have, uh, more is your choice. So if, if you can really get into your own town, it's naturally more convenient. And for us, I think Bombay has anyways always been very high on uh, uh, academics and good hands-on training. So either ways, to me, it was the natural choice. And it all definitely happened by luck, by chance, and whatever hard work that one had to put in. So I still remember all the years of cramming and staying awake in the night, but I think it was all worth it in the end. And now I think pretty much things have changed into a common entrance exam, even to get into MBBS, which is five years, five and a half years, one year of internship, Mm -hmm. then a bond period, which you serve for the government, and then another three years of post-graduation and a bond. In our days, we didn't have too many bonds to do. We just did those five and a half years. We did internship, gave the common interview sort of, for uh, three years uh, MS Ortho. And for those who wanted to start at practice, they could either just pay up the bond and then go in for that. Or if you're really interested in specializing, then you pursue, uh, those days there were very few fellowships, but you pursue hands-on apprenticeship with somebody and then uh, chase fellowships abroad and then come back and then do uh, subject of your interest or just get back into general ortho practice. So it is a very long road. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a long road. I think people should know that, but I think it's very rewarding in the end. So you're actually, I think you're 
35 or 36 years old by the time you're into serious private practice compared to your yes. peers uh, who probably start off earning by the age of 26 and then if they're in multinationals or those things I mean they're already doing very very well by the time it's 35 or 36 so they'll be vice president of an implant company and they'll come and meet you and say oh hey hi what are you up to and you barely started practice but it's it's a different field. I think this this requires that kind of training, and uh, uh, it's not easy uh, doing surgery. So unless you're really very well trained, you should not be <laughs> stepping into private practice. True, that's very true. And I know that you mentioned your mini fellowships, and I believe you did either one or two here in the United States. And I was hoping you can kind of just talk about why. Why come here? Um, not to say that, you know, we don't have great things to offer, but just like why come here for those fellowships and what were the things that you would want to tell other folks who wish to practice medicine in a different country? Yeah, so um, I spent some time with Dr. Peter Waters uh, in Boston because, again, that was a, a pediatric hand and upper limb unit. Uh, visited Louisville, Kentucky for some time uh, just to see how uh, how highly specialized a hand institute is and the sheer number of uh, things and the variety that they do there. And a little bit of time with Paul Manske in St. Louis. So this was part of my Hargobind uh, Fellowship, which is a kind of, there are organizations in India which support you to go out and uh, train for some time or at least observe for some time. It wasn't a classical USMLE fellowship fellowship uh, because you have to have uh, done those steps of USMLE if you want to train in the USA. Because India is a very uh, diverse uh, training structure in every city and in uh, there's a lot of difference in the rural and urban places. Uh, I think till the last 10 years, uh, there was not that much awareness of postdoctoral fellowships or post-MS ortho mm -hmm. or post-MD fellowships. And there were not those many training institutes. So since I was associated with Vadia and by then I was already, Vadia is a 90, 95-year-old children's hospital, uh, almost 340 bedded. So huge amount of uh, referrals that we get from all over the country there. So although I was doing everything that I uh, liked, I think it was important to get a global perspective, to see structured training patterns, and to see uh, how well a focused uh, line of uh, education develops, you know. So it was always good to uh, uh, have a wider perspective before you really step into, and that's by then you're at a reasonably mature uh, level of your own training. So it really helped to have done a lot of this kind of work, then see how global giants uh, do the same and uh, have a research orientation and, and then come back and try and give back to your country. Hmm. Wow, that sounds like it must have just been so incredible to see such variety in such a short amount of time. Yes, yes. I think those three months were the most uh, biggest eye-openers sort of for me. And for anybody who wants to do it now, I think what you have to really learn is 
um, you have got you've got to look at the resources in your own setup. You've got to learn your principles right. You've got to see ways of how you can enhance or improve it, because otherwise you're just doing the same. If you don't contribute back, and that doesn't come overnight. I mean, that comes uh, after a long time. But it's always important to step out of your own small world, see where you stand, realize your worth, realize uh, how little you actually can control. And yet try and make the best of uh, what you've done and try, try and improve yourself. I think learning is a constant process. So mm -hmm. it's important to do that. Yeah, no, that sounds incredible. I do want to talk about um, voice, and I hope I'm saying that correctly, where yes, absolutely in correct. 2018, you founded an organization called Voice, which is Women of Orthopedics India Collective Empowerment. Um, and I was hoping you could tell us the story of why you wanted to create this organization and how you were able to do so. So it's actually one of those things which I never uh, set out to do, but it kind of came my way, is what I will say, that uh, uh, I was really one of the few amongst the boys for a long, long time, and I had just a few girls that I knew here and there. Uh, we would see some more of them if we went for the Pediatric Orthopedic Society of India meetings. But in other mm -hmm. spheres, or in when I... Uh, I worked a lot for the Bombay Orthopedic Society. There were really hardly any. And the Golden Jubilee of the Indian Orthopedic Association, the IOA, which is like the big prestigious annual conference that was held in Bombay in 2005. And I was pretty much part of the organizing team. And we kept on collecting names and meeting girls. And we're just having a coffee table conversation. And we said, OK, let's get serious and let's make a database. And we realized that we were actually exactly 50 at the time of the Golden Jubilee. So I said, this rings a bell somehow. And uh, through one of my seniors, I went and actually uh, discovered and met the very first lady, the actual pioneer, Dr. Late P.K. Mullah Firoz. She was 96 when I went and met her. And uh, oh, wow. uh, yeah, and she was my teacher's teacher. So, I mean, she was... She must have done it way back in the 1940s. So she told me a lot of stories and she told me how she had a lot of uh, uh, difficulty when she wanted to get a job and people thought uh, that, you know, there's no need for a woman here. And they said, you know, ours is a fairly busy hospital and probably won't be able to cope with it. So she said, yes, um, she was a war veteran. She had been ordained the uh, Order of the British Empire. And yet this is what she gets told when she comes back and wants to work. So she said, yes, you're right. I'm not used to OPDs of a few hundreds of patients. I'm used to truckloads of war patients who need uh, orthopedic fixation. So if your institute can give me that, then I'm ready to work. And they had nothing left to say to her. And they just straight away took her on the board. And then she founded the Children's Orthopedic Hospital and uh, did huge amounts of work there. So I found that very, very inspiring. And I thought that, um, you know, if somebody can take the initiative and put everybody together and keep them together, it'll be great. So I proposed that we have a nice scientific session. And since the committee was supportive, I was on the committee. So we had a one-hour session. We had a live debate. 
uh, we unfortunately madam mulla feroz passed four days away i mean uh, just four days before the conference so then we had to instead of honoring her we had to just you know say a memoriam in her name and then we thought oh great this is going fine now let's go to the general body of the uh, ioa and propose that we have a lady cell and the same seniors who were very very supportive in the scientific session just uh, kind of shot it down in the uh, general body saying nothing doing you don't need to have a subset or a group you're creating discrimination so i i mean i think i was very very upset with that and it was a big setback uh, to see that when it actually comes to governing the association uh, it's not a welcome idea i i won't really blame them or want to put labels on them but i i don't think uh, they were ready for it then maybe it just came as a bit of a bolt and maybe enough thought had not right. gone into how will we go about it so then slowly over the years we kept on kind of collecting and meeting and staying in touch and then in 2016 i actually won an election and uh, stepped into the indian orthopedic association committee and that i saw as an opportunity and i said okay this is this is the time either i really do it now or uh, it's probably never going to happen because when you share journeys you realize that you may have been fortunate or you may have been headstrong and you know got your way around but that's not the story of so many others in india a uh, lot of women get married early so a lot of the women ortho or the pods that i'd met along the way uh, some had just been made orthopedic surgeons because it helps the family business of small nursing homes and things like that so it wasn't out of choice it was a choice given to them so they were very uh shy to step up or go and present somewhere or uh, you know even talk about what difficulties they have so i said this is it's not really a level playing field and unless a platform is created things won't change be uh, girls won't come out of their closets and speak so to me it was all about really creating something and i i think i've always enjoyed making something where nothing exists a lot and that kind of gets the adrenaline pumping together and if there's opposition wow i mean i just love love to really take things head on that's probably one of my weaknesses as well but maybe that's what creates the path um, that's just how i am so then again it was discussed in an executive it was put to vote in a general body and shot down but as you speak up more i think the first difficulty is always about getting out there and letting people know that this is what you want to do you find allies who are welcome to change and because you were not visible so far they didn't even know that somebody wants to do this and they need help or support so the more i spoke up the more resistance i got the more i got discussed not just me i i don't mean at the i but uh, what we wanted to do about voice it got discussed and then one of my really good friends he actually gave us he suggested this name to us he said why are you all just saying lady cell call it something nice give it a nice uh, mnemonic or an anagram so we brainstormed so we had fun actually creating this crafting this and uh, it, it just went through i think again the universe really conspires it went through by 2017 or 18 when dr ratsikran who was the chairperson of the uh, 2018 iocon 
He said, why not? Of course, we can have this session. And then it became mm. uh, something positive. He was the IOA president as well in the following year. So, uh, or in the previous years, I think, yes, I'm getting that date wrong. So then it created a recurring trend. And a lot of presidents who came subsequently, because I think the committee changes every time. It's not just the president, the whole lot of 100, 150 executive members who some warm up to the idea. And then we got a prize session instituted in Madam P.K. Mullah Feroz's name as well. So I think slowly and steadily, the more we pushed, the more we became a collective force, the more uh, people realized that this is something to reckon with. So, and now, I mean, lots of girls are there. We are 369 as I look on my Telegram group just now. And it's very heartwarming. It's very heartwarming. But against a denominator of 13,000 orthopedic surgeons, we are still a small percentage. Mm-hmm. Right. But to go from 50 to over 350, that's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Wow. Gosh. Um, I was hoping you can kind of talk about the future goals of WISE and kind of what you hope to be doing in the next coming years. Yes. So uh, WISE, I think uh, one of the biggest strengths of WISE is that uh, since we are very well networked, uh, we definitely want to get integrated better into everything. Uh, VOICE will remain as a supportive group, but we don't want to be just talking amongst ourselves. We want the voice to be heard and we want the voice to be heard without the need to raise the voice. So in every state now, at least two have taken the lead. That is my own parent state, Maharashtra and Karnataka and Telangana, actually three. We have a female nominated member to the governing committees. We hold plenty of webinars. Uh, even the state conferences, national conferences, regional conferences, uh, women do get a very good podium, depending on their province, of course. But there are a lot of uh, 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 you know additional platforms created for just allowing women PGs to present cases, to get over the inhibitions, to get over the shyness, and train them into public speaking, train them into correct scientific presentations. Every year we hold a training of the trainers where a few mentors, be it men or women, we sit together and we, by choice, we take about 20, 25 girls and train them how to speak better. So that's one of the uh, big big goals of voice to be able to integrate, to continue to train and pl- provide a platform more than any ca- anything else, provide a platform for all those women who thought it was not okay for them to come up and speak or come up and make a presentation or do a paper or talk on a topic. No, we are here. We are right here to support you at whatever stage you can. If you're excellent, of course, your podium opportunities are always going to be large. But uh, even if you're not, you can always, this is a skill you can acquire. You can become excellent. I mean, I wasn't born with it. I also learned it along the way. So I understand that. And I I think that's why the support and the journey is uh, a constant mentoring and um, kind of, you know, I've got your back there. Do it. It's okay. That, that feeling is very important. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. And I do want to also talk about, um, in addition to the work you have done and continue to do for voice, um, you're also on the executive committee of the WAVES section of the Asia Pacific Orthopedic Association. 
Um, and for our listeners, something that I did not know was mm-hmm. that the Asia Pacific Orthopedic Association represents more than 40,000 orthopedic surgeons of the Asia Pacific um, nations, which is absolutely incredible um, and just blows my mind. But I was hoping you can uh, just sort of describe for our listeners why this section was created. Yeah, so I think that this, again, uh, the journey continues. Uh, the more you go into something, I think avenues open up. Uh, Asia Pacific uh, Association is really a large association f- for sure. A lot of uh, federation members from countries, a lot of individual countries which are members. Um, I was the founder secretary because uh, Dr. Annette Hulian, uh, who was just the past president of uh, Australia Orthopedic Association and a few other ladies and some very good allies in men. Um, Mm. They all also felt that, you know, there are very different representations from countries across the Asia Pacific. And like all diversity, of course, diversity is a big strong point in APOA. It still helps to have a network It still helps to have a subsection dedicated to this so that the countries which don't have too much representation can be helped, supported and brought forward. And uh, if you say issues or uh, let's say um, not really issues, but I think the practices and the uh, experiences of women orthopedic surgeons across all different countries are really variegated and at different levels. So there was a need to connect all of them. There was a need to share collectively the experiences and enhance the care of uh, female orthopedic patients as well. Because again, these are areas which we haven't really focused on. In general, in the orthopedic world, trauma, arthroplasty, sports, scopy, these all receive a lot of attention. But since it's close to my heart, uh, say, for example, DDH or scoliosis, when you look at, there are a lot of uh, disorders which are commoner in the female child or in the feminine populations, osteoporosis as we grow uh, older. So these are areas which need much more awareness, focus, attention and care. So combining uh, support to women orthopedic surgeons combining advocacy and uh, training which would be needed and combining female ortho care. So the idea was to amalgamate all three and have a robust support network which can in future really contribute to public health. And I think women orthopods somehow by their sensitivities are a little more inclined to work in these areas or even if they're not, I think the potential can surely be harnessed. So we came together and uh, I've learned a lot in the last year as the founder secretary with a wonderful chairperson like Tanya Burgess and excellent um, co-workers like Erica from Indonesia, T. Sara from Malaysia. But again, the more you network, the more you meet. For example, I realized that T. Sara was one of the uh, pioneers. She's nearly 80, completely full of good spirits. And even Annette is fairly senior. So there have been so sh- learning from their journey, sharing what they saw in their days as one of the few women to step into orthopedics. It's a huge learning and a very humbling experience. Definitely. Definitely. 
Wow. Can you also talk about kind of what the future goals of this section are? So the APOA waves, uh, since I'm the chair uh, this year onwards, but the team is almost the same and we have two new ones, is going to focus a lot on membership. We are going to focus a lot on advocacy and uh, setting up a dialogue between all the different countries that are woven into the APOA. Uh, We've realized that there are a few countries which have absolutely no women in ortho. So we want to look into that and see if there are any barriers. If so, then whether those can be changed. We, uh, one of our stronger focus is also going to be now collaborating with diversity organizations across the world. Say, uh, you know, I mean, Speak Up Ortho or WOW or IODA. I mean, I think that they're all integrated memberships. Uh, Ruth Jackson. So, so collaborating with other women's organizations is again going to be a big area that we are going to look into. Uh, of course, it will take time and it will require a lot of effort, but uh, I guess we are renewed with enthusiasm and up to it. Yes. I think something that I feel like has been a common theme throughout only your career, but the creation of voice and the creation of the section was the support of your male colleagues. And I know that, you know, you often, um, you know, we get that feedback of, no, you can't do this. No, you can't enter this field. But it seems like there were also some of your male colleagues who also kind of allowed this and support, and more, more importantly, they supported this um, in order for your endeavors and all of your efforts with these various organizations and such that you can achieve what you wanted to achieve. Yeah, I think that is uh, uh, always true because uh, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I will add one more word to what you said, allowed and supported. Uh, they actually encouraged. So there, right. uh, there is always uh, the yin and the yang. There's always two sides of the coin. If you reach out, if you mm-hmm. network, uh, if you don't speak up, if you don't say what you want, I think nobody's going to just give it to you on a platter. You have to work hard for it, but you also have to uh, know who will uh, understand you at the same level. Uh, find out why do you want to do something different. See the merit in it and then have your back all the way. So, I mean, you, you've got to have those friends who will make the difference for you, but you're the one who has to take the first leap. And you have to keep on charging. I mean, it's like swimming, okay? You can't let go of your core. But at the same time, you've got to plow ahead. And it's important to have those resistors as well. You know, if you don't have water resistance, what's the fun in swimming? So uh, sometimes that spurns you more. I think somebody like me, uh, one of my mentors always used to say that, you know, if you want to get Ruchita to do something, just tell her you can't do this. And then she'll just get all up and about and say, how dare you tell me I can't do this. But that that's uh, perhaps just a personality trait. But you need an impetus. Right. I think, you know, keeping names and labels aside, you need an impetus to get into something. And then it's your sustainability and consistency which matters. And if you do all of that, I think nature supports it. So you will find detractors, you will find helpers. It's up to you where to keep them at arm's length or really close. (laughs) Yeah. 
No, that's that's so funny how you mentioned that. Like one of the things people, if they want me to do something, they're like, ah, oh, I don't know, if, I don't know if this can really happen. It's like mm, challenge accepted. Um, so I, I also share that quality um, yeah. in common. And and I think it's a big uh, opportunity to learn as well. You know, in fact, if it's something is not right. your talent or something is not your forte, it's a whole new journey again by itself. So uh, it, it's important to try and do yeah. things which are out of your comfort zone. Yes, so true. So true. And I know we've spoken a lot about what you've done in the past. And I was hoping mm-hmm. you can also now speak about what you hope to do in the future, both with your work clinically as well as your work for um, all of these various organizations. So I think what I would really like to have is to be able to harness my skills and uh, whatever I've learned so far in whatever position I am in to be able to make a meaningful contribution, uh, especially to my patients and to my uh, future women peers. Um, Definitely, uh, disorders which are common in the female child are a big interest to me now, uh, especially the hip, because I think uh, really getting awareness more and more about uh, uh, safe swaddling or uh, hip awareness, hip disorders awareness, can actually change the incidence. Right. I think India and developing countries, this side, we see a lot of neglected DDH or late onset scoliosis, or I mean, things which are really brought late to uh, medical attention. So the more we advocate for mm-hmm. that, even clubfoot for that matter, I think we see a lot of walking age clubfoot, which perhaps in the Western world is hardly there. So these are uh, uh, disorders that we need to focus and work more on. Um, for the women in ortho, I definitely want to be able to use my experience and share whatever hardships I've faced to and try and at least subvert them and make it slightly better for uh, the women who want to get into ortho or are finding it difficult to cope because uh, I think op- making voice has opened a big, huge uh, area of mentorship and a sisterhood, really speaking. Now, now I'm so close to some of the girls who I didn't know at all. Had it known been for not been for voice, I would have never met them either. And I mean, some of right. them are just so talented, so sweet. I mean, such wonderful human beings that I've met. So having that kind of a bond or a family is also important. And at the same time, I think I want to teach them for sure that we're here to do serious business. We are not here to demand a reservation for women in councils. If that's happening as a byproduct, that's great. If uh, if it's happening that you get a leadership position because this year they want a woman to step up to the cadre, so they nominate you there, that's fine. But you need to make a difference. So whatever opportunity comes your way, don't waste it. Don't just be there like... Uh, the rest of them, because I think uh, as sexist as it sounds, but uh, it's a fact that if you are a woman in an unusual profession or if you are a woman in a leadership position, you will be watched not twice, I think 10 times as much as your other male colleagues. True. The smallest of mistakes can get blown up. Uh, The uh, biggest of ideas can get beaten down if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. So you need to also know to walk the rope and learn the ropes really well. So it is definitely twice right. as tough, but I think that's where you need to harness 
um, the multitasking which comes naturally to women as homemakers and uh, career persons. And I think in Bombay, because I think it's a very industrious, uh, sorry, I should say Mumbai, a very, very industrious uh, city from the beginning. You see men and women really working shoulder to shoulder because sometimes it is that's what is needed to just run their families. And in all sorts of professions, right, from auto drivers to truck drivers. I have school, uh, women from my school who have been the first pilots, commercial pilots, um, you know, anything. You just name any profession and uh, we can do it. So in ortho, it's important to harness that. I'm not saying ortho is uh, not tough or a cakewalk. It's not, but because it's not, all the more reason to put in your best. Right. Oh, that's so true. Such fantastic words, Dr. Med. I really, really appreciate it. And I do want to move into our final segment, which I like to call the final five, which mm. are the same five questions I ask every guest on the She Can Fix It podcast. And so my first final five question for you is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? So my favorite procedure is a conjoint muscle transfer for shoulder reconstruction and obstetrical brachial plexus. And why is it is one of the most tangible uh, surgeries that I have seen and done because the benefits, if you really select your patients right, and it is just, it's something that works so well. It, it definitely restores function and it makes a huge difference to the child's life and the family. And they, I mean, when you start seeing a patient who cannot abduct or externally rotate, within six weeks, if they start reaching up or they can comb their own hair, they can get into their own clothes, you're changing a disability into, a, you're enabling them. So that's absolutely my favorite. I can close my eyes and do it. <laughs> That sounds incredible. Goodness. Um, what are your go-to topics for Grand Rounds presentations or just presentations in general when you go to conferences? So definitely upper limb and congenital hand is something which uh, I, I have reasonable experience with and I uh, love to teach. But uh, in the lower limb, CDH or DDH, club feet, birthies, and growth modulation or angular deformities around the knee. These are my absolute favorites. Awesome. What is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? Uh, many actually, but I think uh, since I needed to think out one, uh, can I cheat and have two? So 100%. Okay. So one, uh, I'll say the, unpleasant one first and then the pleasant one later is a child of uh, neurogenic scoliosis who had had several surgeries and this was my early days in Vadia and he had a muscular mm -hmm. dystrophy and uh, he would do quite well with two kind of or three surgeries that had to be repeated because the in those days you had not you didn't even have the growth rods and things like that so you had to revise right. the entire fixation and one of the, I mean, the last surgery that he underwent, for some reason, I was very attached to him because he had grown up in the ward. He would just not let go of me and he just held on to me and said in his in, in Hindi, Didi mala ta, uh, takunakos. That's, uh, sorry, in Marathi. 
so which, which meant uh, didi means sister so he would look up to me as an elder sister and he would say don't lay me down on the ot table some strange premonition that he had and mm. that particular surgery he just didn't wake up after that so although we had a great fixation i think his uh, muscular dystrophy was worsening over a period of time and mm. uh, he just he just couldn't get off the ventilator so it wasn't really anybody's fault but uh, right that taught me a lot about uh, not looking at things um, from just from fixation or diagnosis point of view but to really look at uh, the patient as a whole and may- maybe we could have evaluated him better maybe maybe we could have just waited a little or just used a conservative technique rather than the intention was good to have his spine going up back so that his pft would improve but he just couldn't take it right. so i think ju- judgment isn't easy and sometimes it comes the hard way mm-hmm. so you got to learn your lesson so that's always been close to my heart that uh, i should never remember uh, forget that all through my training and uh, and teaching and never get over aggressive with a patient mm-hmm. and the other favorite right. st- uh, story is we had this arthrogryptic girl who was brought in by a, a mother who was literally sobbing in the opd because her uh, in-laws had uh, kind of told her that if you have such a deformed child we don't want you back and she was mm-hmm. all of about 1 and 1/2 kilos when she was full term so which was she was very emaciated she had a ddh bilaterally bilateral club feet bilateral mm-hmm. uh, cdks as well dislocations of the knee cleft lip cleft palate uh, scoliosis uh, nubbins on the hand so i mean constriction bands in addition to the arthrogryposis and they just kind of said that this is a monster child don't bring her back or don't feed her but the mother was very determined and she says whatever else happens i can't let go and then through the years we've done almost all the surgeries uh, she's pretty reasonably uh, functional and straight now and um, she can't bend too much at the knees but she's she's functional she's able to sit on a chair and work around so when it came for her to choose a career uh, she was i think through the disability quota or something she was able to choose whichever area she wants to specialize in and she chose science mm-hmm. and she said she wants to be a doctor and when one of the newspapers interviewed her i had it was a total surprise but uh, i had no idea that she was going to say that's because i've seen my doctor work hard on me to make me stand where i am and therefore i want to be a doctor so th- that that was a very heart touching story that uh, if if you make that much of a difference to somebody's life and yes she got in and she's doing pharmacology now so mm. clinical pharmacology but i i, I think that that touches me every time i get emotional i can't even go on <laughs> i know i'm on the verge of tears that's just so special um goodness wow that that's congratulations to you thank you and all the work that you've done to be able to touch patients that way um gosh what are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine yeah plenty i love singing Uh, I love dancing. Oh, nice. I act, I write plays. Um uh, oh. direct them. 
I'm not very sporty, oh, wow. but uh, write poems. <laughs> I like the creative arts a lot. And yes, yeah, spending lots of time with mm. nature and wildlife. And wow, I did not know you were a playwright. Gosh, that came out <laughs> very of small. Field. That's awesome. So I'll just tell you something interesting about it. That uh, one of the things which, like the usual, she can't do it kind of a thing happened. And mm. all the conferences they wanted something. Uh, you know, usually debates are the most popular thing. And we, while we were in the organizing committee, it was being discussed that let's have. Uh, absolutely sensational session at the end of the conference which everybody will stay back for so they wanted to get two very powerful speakers to have the debate and then some others in the committee felt that no 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 it's these two same speakers every year and there's no fun left in it anymore um, they tend to add a lot of drama to it so instead let's just do some drama mm. and I said well yeah good this is a good opportunity and uh, let's have four skits which are designed about medical legal problems and we'll call this an edutainment section where you do give a powerful mm. message you want to touch upon medical legal aspects but without making it boring so we enacted four scenarios actual patient scenarios getting players and actors to pose as patients and things like that from orthopedic surgeons only so and mm-hmm. uh, we didn't really tell too many people as to what we were doing. And then we actually were auditioned that is the, are these plays coming through properly? And surely it was a super hit. So that kind of stuff. Not that I do oh, it as word. a regular hobby, but uh, it's fun. I think creativity is fun. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. I think we need to do that at the next conference, whatever. I, I'm going to propose that and I'll be, oh my goodness. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. fun and because even sitting and writing a medical legal problem in the form of a skit, mm-hmm. it makes it very mm-hmm. challenging for you personally and to me personally rather. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. And then my last question for you, Dr. Mehta, is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? So I think this is going to be common uh, both to boys and girls. Um, I think orthopedics is a branch which uh, really requires a lot of thought, you know, be it trauma, be it uh, arthroplasty. Uh, the consequences of your surgery or your decisions are going to be huge. Uh, they can have a big impact. Uh, you can get very well trained in your craft. There is no doubt about that. You must do your training well. You must learn excellence all the time. But uh, taking a step back and thinking about whatever you've decided, learning to listen to the patient's story, sometimes opens up a whole different way of decision making so coming to a dialogue uh, thinking which will be the best procedure for this patient and will that really stand him him or her in the long term that should be the thought process throughout every opd every surgery that you do Uh, i've seen seniors embark upon it i've seen seniors uh, sometimes not operating at all as a young trainee, I used to think they are being nihilistic, but now I'm wiser. I've seen what things can uh, go wrong. So uh, it's not an easy journey, but I think that is what keeps you going and keeps you alive all through because this is one of the few branches which is not ablative. It is reconstructive. So you need to put in all your energies and make it right. 
Wow. Dr. Mehta, this has just been absolutely fantastic. I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. And I sincerely wish you the best of luck with everything that you're doing. And same here, Alana. I think you too are doing a wonderful job reaching out to people across continents, connecting them and sharing their journeys. It's, that too requires a lot of dedication and doing it consistently. So I think somewhere uh, everybody is a soul sister if you just look out for them. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Rajuta Mehta. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website, at www.shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe.